Section 7 of Meet Mr. Moliner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by James Hutchison. Meet Mr. Moliner by P.G. Woodhouse. Portrait of a Disciplinarian. It was with something of the relief of fog-bound city-dwellers who at last behold the sun that we perceived, on entering the bar-parlor of the Angler's Rest, that Mr. Mulliner was seated once more in the familiar chair. For some days he had been away, paying a visit to an old nurse of his down in Devonshire, and there was no doubt that, in his absence, the tide of intellectual conversation had run very low. No, said Mr. Mulliner, in answer to a question as to whether he enjoyed himself, I cannot pretend that it was an altogether agreeable experience. I was conscious throughout of a sense of strain. The poor old thing is almost completely deaf, and her memory is not what it once was. Moreover, it is a moot point whether a man of sensibility can ever be entirely at his ease in the presence of a woman who has frequently spanked him with the flat side of a hairbrush. Mr. Mulliner winced slightly, as if the old wound still troubled him. "'It is curious,' he went on, after a thoughtful pause, "'how little change the years bring about in the attitude of a real, genuine, crusted old family nurse towards one who in the early Knickerbocker stage of his career had been a charge of hers. He may grow gray or bald or be looked up to by the rest of his world as a warm performer on the stock exchange,' or a devil of a fellow in the sphere of politics, or the arts, but to his old Nana he will still be the Master James or Master Percival who had to be hounded by threats to keep his face clean. Shakespeare would have cringed before his old nurse. So would Herbert Spencer, Attila the Hun, and the Emperor Nero. My nephew Frederick, but I must not bore you with my family gossip. We reassured him. Oh, well, if you wish to hear the story, there's nothing much in it as a story, but it bears out the truth of what I have just been saying. I will begin, said Mr. Mulliner, at the moment when Frederick, having come down from London in response to an urgent summons from his brother, Dr. George Mulliner, stood in the latter's consulting room, looking out upon the esplanade of that quiet little watering place, Bingley-on-Sea. George's consulting room, facing west, had the advantage of getting the afternoon sun. And this afternoon it needed all the sun it could get to counteract Frederick's extraordinary gloom. The young man's expression, as he confronted his brother, was that which a miasmic pool in some dismal swamp in the Badlands might have worn, if it had had a face. Then the position, as I see it, he said in a low, toneless voice, is this. On the pretext of wishing to discuss urgent business with me, you have dragged me down to this foul spot, seventy miles by rail, in a compartment containing three distinct infant-sucking sweets, merely to have tea with a nurse whom I have disliked since I was a child. You have contributed to her support for many years, George reminded him. Naturally, when the family were clubbing together to pension off the old blister, well, I chipped in with my little bit, said Frederick. Noblesse oblige. Well, noblesse obliges you to go and have tea with her when she invites you. Wilkes must be humored. 
She is not so young as she once was. She must be a hundred. Eighty-five. Good heavens! And it seems only yesterday that she shut me up in a cupboard for stealing jam. She was a great disciplinarian, agreed George. You may find her a little on the autocratic side still. And I want to impress upon you, as her medical man, that you must not thwart her lightest whim. She'll probably offer you boiled eggs and homemade cake. Eat them. I will not eat boiled eggs at five o'clock in the afternoon, said Frederick, with a strong man's menacing calm, for any woman on earth. You will, and with relish. Her heart is weak. If you don't humor her, I won't answer for the consequences. If I eat boiled eggs at five in the afternoon, I won't answer for the consequences. And why boiled eggs, dash it? I'm not a schoolboy. To her you are. She looks on all of us as children still. Last Christmas she gave me a copy of Eric, or Little by Little. Eric turned to the window and scowled down upon the noxious and depressing scene below. Sparing neither age nor sex in his detestation, he regarded the old ladies reading their library novels on the seats with precisely the same dislike and contempt which he bestowed on the boys' school clattering past on its way to the bathing houses. Then, checking up on your statements, he said, I find that I am expected to go to tea with a woman who, in addition, apparently, to being a blend of Lucretia Borgia and a Prussian sergeant major, is a physical wreck and practically potty. Why? That is what I ask. Why? As a child, I objected strongly to Nurse Wilkes, and now, grown to riper years, the thought of meeting her again gives me the heebie-jeebies. Why should I be victimized? Why me, particularly? It isn't you, particularly. We've all been to see her at intervals, and so have the Oliphants. The Oliphants? The name seemed to affect Frederick oddly. He winced, as if his brother had been a dentist instead of a general practitioner, and had just drawn one of his back teeth. She was their nurse after she left us. You can't have forgotten the elephants. I remember you at the age of twelve climbing that old elm at the bottom of the paddock to get Jane Elephant a rook's egg. Frederick laughed bitterly. I must have been a perfect ass. Fancy risking my life for a girl like that. Not, he went on, that life's worse much. An absolute washout. That's what life is. However, it will soon be over. And then the silence and peace of the grave. That, said Frederick, is the thought that sustains me. A pretty kid, Jane. Someone told me she had grown up quite a beauty. Without a heart. Well, what do you know about it? Merely this. She pretended to love me, and then a few months ago she went off to the country to stay with some people named Ponderby and wrote me a letter breaking off the engagement. She gave no reasons, and I have not seen her since. She is now engaged to a man named Dillingwater, and I hope it chokes her. I've never heard about this. I'm sorry. I'm not. Merciful release is the way I look at it. Uh, would he be one of the Sussex Dillingwaters? I don't know what county the family infests. If I did, I would avoid it. Well, I'm sorry. No wonder you're depressed. Depressed, said Frederick, outraged. Me? You don't suppose I'm worrying myself about a girl like that, do you? I've never been so happy in my life. 
I'm just bubbling over with cheerfulness. Oh, is that what it is? George looked at his watch. Well, you better be pushing along. It'll take you about ten minutes to get to Marazion Road. How do I find the blasted house? The name's on the door. What is the name? We Holm. My God, said Frederick Mulliner. It only needed that. The view which he had had of it from his brother's window should no doubt have prepared Frederick for the hideous loathsomeness of Bingley-on-Sea, but as he walked along he found it coming on him as a complete surprise. Until now he had never imagined that a small town could possess so many soul-searing features. He passed little boys and thought how repulsive little boys were. He met tradesmen's carts and his gorge rose at the sight of them. He hated the houses. And, most of all, he objected to the sun. It shone down with a cheeriness which was not only offensive, but, it seemed to Frederick Mulliner, deliberately offensive. What he wanted was wailing winds and driving rain, not a beastly expanse of vivid blue. It was not that the perfidy of Jane Oliphant had affected him in any way. It was simply that he disliked blue skies and sunshine. He had a temperamental antipathy for them, just as he had a temperamental fondness for tombs and sleet and hurricanes and earthquakes and famines and pestilences. And he found that he had arrived in Marazion Road. Marazion Road was made up of two spotless pavements stretching into the middle distance and flanked by two rows of neat little red brick villas. It smote Frederick like a blow. He felt as he looked at those houses with their little brass knockers and little white curtains that they were occupied by people who knew nothing of Frederick Mulliner and were content to know nothing. People who were simply not carrying a whoop that only a few short months before the girl to whom he had been engaged had sent back his letters and gone and madly gotten herself betrothed to a man named Dillingwater. He found Wee home and hit it a nasty slap with a snocker. Footsteps sounded in the passage, and the door opened. "'Why, Master Frederick,' said Nurse Wilkes, "'I should hardly have known you.' Frederick, in spite of the natural gloom caused by the blue sky and the warm sunshine, found his mood lightening somewhat. Something that might almost have been a spasm of tenderness passed through him. He was not a bad-hearted young man. He ranked in that respect, he supposed, somewhere midway between his brother George who had a heart of gold, and people like the future Mrs. Dillingwater, who had no heart at all. And there was a fragility about Nurse Wilkes that first astonished, and then touched him. The images which we form in childhood are slow to fade, and Frederick had been under the impression that Nurse Wilkes was fully six feet tall, with the shoulders of a weightlifter and eyes that glittered cruelly beneath beetling brows. What he saw now was a little old woman with a wrinkled face, it looked as if a puff of wind would blow her away. He was oddly stirred. He felt large and protective. He saw his brother's point now. Most certainly this frail old thing must be humored. Only a brute would refuse to humor her. Yes, felt Frederick Mulliner, even if it meant boiled eggs at five o'clock in the afternoon. Well, you are getting a big boy, said Nurse Wilkes, beaming. Don't you think so? said Frederick with equal amiability, quite the little man, and all dressed up. Go into the parlor, dear, and sit down. 
I'm getting the tea. Thanks. Wipe your boots. The voice, thundering from a quarter whence hitherto only soft gooings had proceeded, affected Frederick Mulliner a little like the touching off of a mine beneath his feet. Spinning around, he perceived a different person altogether from the mild and kindly hostess of a moment back. He was plain that there yet lingered in Nurse Wilkes not a little of the ancient fire. Her mouth was tightly compressed, and her eyes gleamed dangerously. The idea of your bringing your nasty boots into my nice clean house without wiping them, said Nurse Wilkes. Sorry, said Frederick humbly. He burnished the criticized shoes on the mat and tottered to the parlor. He felt much smaller, much younger, much feebler than he had felt a minute ago. His morale had been shattered into fragments. And it was not eased by the sight, as he entered the parlor, of Miss Jane Oliphant sitting in an armchair by the window. It is hardly to be supposed that the reader will be interested in the appearance of a girl of the stamp of Jane Oliphant, a girl capable of wantonly returning a good man's letters and going off and getting engaged to a Dillingwater. But one may as well describe her and get it over. She had golden-brown hair, golden-brown eyes, golden-brown eyebrows, a nice nose with one freckle on the tip, a mouth which, when it parted in a smile, disclosed pretty teeth, and a resolute little chin. At the present moment, the mouth was not parted in a smile. It was closed up tight, and the chin was more than resolute. It looked like the ram of a very small battleship. She gazed at Frederick as if he were the smell of onions, and she did not say a word. Nor did Frederick say very much. Nothing is more difficult for a young man than to find exactly the right remark with which to open conversation with a girl who has recently returned his letters. Darn good letters, too. Reading them over after opening the package, he had been amazed at their charm and eloquence. Frederick, then, confined his observations to the single word, Guck. Having uttered this, he sank into a chair and stared at the carpet. The girl stared out of the window, and complete silence reigned in the room, till from the interior of a clock which was ticking on the mantelpiece, a small wooden bird suddenly emerged, said, Cuckoo, and withdrew. The abruptness of this bird's appearance, and the oddly staccato nature of its diction, could not but have their effect on a man whose nerves were not what they had been. Frederick Mulliner, rising some eighteen inches from his chair, uttered a hasty exclamation. I beg your pardon, said Jane Oliphant, raising her eyebrows. Well, how was I to know I was going to do that, said Frederick defensively. Jane Oliphant shrugged her shoulders. The gesture seemed to imply supreme indifference to what the sweepings of the underworld knew or did not know. But Frederick, the ice being now in a manner broken, refused to return the silence. What are you doing here? he said. I have come to have tea with Nana. Well, I didn't know you were going to be here. Oh, if I'd known you were going to be here, you've got a large smut on your nose. Frederick gritted his teeth and reached for his handkerchief. Perhaps I'd better go, he said. You will do nothing of the kind, said Miss Oliphant sharply. She is looking forward to seeing you. Though why, why, prompted Frederick coldly. Oh, nothing. 
in the unpleasant silence which followed, broken only by the deep breathing of a man who was trying to choose the rudest out of the three retorts which had presented themselves to him, Nurse Wilkes entered. It's just a suggestion, said Miss Oliphant aloofly. But don't you think you might help Nana with that heavy tray? Frederick, roused from his preoccupation, sprang to his feet, blushing the blush of shame. You might have strained yourself, Nana, the girl went on, in a voice dripping with indignant sympathy. I was going to help her, mumbled Frederick. Yes, after she had put the tray down on the table. Poor Nana, how heavy it must have been. Not for the first time since their acquaintance had begun, Frederick felt a sort of wistful wonder at his erstwhile fiancé's uncanny ability to put him in the wrong. His emotions now were rather what they would have been if he had been detected striking his hostess with some blunt instrument. He always was a thoughtless boy, said Nurse Wilkes tolerantly. Do sit down, Mr. Frederick, and have your tea. I've boiled some eggs for you. I know what a boy you always are for eggs. Frederick, starting, directed a swift glance at the tray. Yes, his worst fears had been realized. Eggs, and large ones. A stomach which he had fallen rather into the habit of pampering of late years gave a little whimper of apprehension. Yes, proceeded Nurse Wilkes, pursuing the subject. You never could have enough eggs, nor cake. Dear me! How sick you made yourself with cake that day of Miss Jane's birthday party. Please, said Miss Oliphant, with a slight shiver. She looked coldly at her fermenting fellow guest as he sat plumbing the deepest abysses of self-loathing. Uh, no eggs for me, thank you, he said. Master Frederick, you will eat your nice boiled eggs, said Nurse Wilkes. Her voice was still amiable, but there was a hint of dynamite behind it. I don't want any eggs. Master Frederick, the dynamite exploded. Once again, that amazing transformation had taken place, and a frail little old woman had become an intimidating force with which only a Napoleon could have reckoned. I will not have this sulking. Frederick gulped. I'm sorry, he said meekly. I should enjoy an egg. Two eggs corrected Nurse Wilk. Two eggs, said Frederick. Miss Oliphant twisted the knife in the wound. There seems to be plenty of cake, too. How nice for you. Still, I should be careful if I were you. It looks rather rich. I never could understand, she went on, addressing Nurse Wilkes in a voice which Frederick, who was now about seven years old, considered insufferably grown up and affected why people should find any enjoyment in stuffing and gorging and making pigs of themselves. Boys will be boys, argued Nurse Wilkes. I suppose so, sighed Miss Oliphant. Still, it's all rather unpleasant. A slight but well-defined glitter appeared in Nurse Wilkes's eyes. She detected a tendency to hoity-toityness in her young guest's manner, and hoity-toityness was a thing to be checked. Girls, she said, are by no means perfect. Ah, breathed Frederick, in rapturous adhesion to the sentiment. Girls have their little faults. Girls are sometimes inclined to be vain. I know a little girl not a hundred miles from this room who is so proud of her new panties that she ran out in the street in them. Nana, said Miss Oliphant pinkly. 
Disgusting, said Frederick. He uttered a short laugh. And so full was this laugh, though short, of scorn, disdain, and a certain hideous masculine superiority that Jane Oliphant's proud spirit writhed beneath the affliction. She turned on him with blazing eyes. What did you say? I said disgusting. Indeed, I cannot, said Frederick judicially, imagine a more deplorable exhibition, and I hope you were sent to bed without any supper. If you ever had to go to bed without your supper, said Miss Oliphant, who believed an attack as the best form of defense, it would kill you. Is that so? said Frederick. You're a beast and I hate you, said Miss Oliphant. Is that so? Yes, that is so. Now, 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 said Nurse Wilkes. Come, come, come. She eyed the two with that comfortable look of power and capability, which comes naturally to women who have spent half a century in dealing with the young and fractious. We will have no quarreling. Make up at once. Master Frederick, give Miss Jane a nice kiss. The room rocked before Frederick's bulging eyes. A what? Give her a nice big kiss and tell her you're sorry you quarreled with her. She quarreled with me. Never mind. A little gentleman must always take the blame. Frederick, working desperately, dragged to the surface a sketchy smile. I apologize, he said. Don't mention it, said Miss Oliphant. Kiss her, said Nurse Wilkes. I won't, said Frederick. What? I won't. Master Frederick, said Nurse Wilkes, rising and pointing a menacing finger. You march straight into that cupboard in the passage and stay there until you are good. Frederick hesitated. He came of a proud family. A mulliner had once received the thanks of his sovereign for services rendered on the field of Crecy, but the recollection of what his brother George had said decided him, infradig as it might be, to allow himself to be shoved away in cupboards. It was better than being responsible for a woman's heart failure. With bowed head he passed through the door and a key clicked behind him. All alone in a dark world that smelt of mice, Frederick Mulliner gave himself up to gloomy reflection. He had just put in about two minutes' intense thought of a kind which would have made the meditations of Schopenhauer on one of his bad mornings seem like the daydreams of Pollyanna, when a voice spoke through the crack in the door. Freddy, I mean, Mr. Mulliner. Well, she's gone into the kitchen to get the jam, proceeded the voice rapidly. Shall I let you out? Pray do not trouble, said Frederick coldly. I am perfectly comfortable. Silence followed. Frederick returned to his reverie. About now, he thought, but for his brother George's treachery in luring him down to this plague spot by a misleading telegram, he would have been on the twelfth green at Squashy Hollow, trying out that new putter. Instead of which, the door opened abruptly, and as abruptly closed again, and Frederick Mulliner, who had been looking forward to an unbroken solitude, discovered with a good deal of astonishment that he had started taking in lodgers. "'What are you doing here?' he demanded, with a touch of proprietorial disapproval. The girl did not answer, but presently muffled sounds came to him through the darkness. In spite of himself, a certain tenderness crept upon Frederick. "'I say,' he said awkwardly, "'there's nothing to cry about. I'm not crying, I'm laughing.' Oh, the tenderness waned. 
You think it's amusing, do you, being shut up in the stand cupboard? There is no need to use bad language. I entirely disagree with you. There's every need to use bad language. It's ghastly enough being at Bingley on Sea at all, but when it comes to being shut up in Bingley cupboards with a girl you hate? We will not go into that aspect of the matter, said Frederick with dignity. The important point is that here I am in a cupboard on Bingley on Sea when if there were any justice or right thinking in the world, I should be out at Squashy Hollow. Oh, do you still play golf? Certainly I still play golf. Why not? I don't know why not. I'm just glad you are still able to amuse yourself. How do you mean, still? Do you think that just because I, I don't think anything? I suppose you imagined I would be creeping about the place, a broken-hearted wreck? Oh, no, I knew you would find it easy to console yourself. Well, what do you mean by that? Never mind. Are you insinuating that I'm the sort of man who turns lightly from one woman to another? A mere butterfly who flits from flower to flower, sipping? Yes, if you want to know, I think you are a born sipper. Frederick started. The charge was monstrous. I have never sipped. And what's more, I have never flitted. That's funny. What's funny? What you said. You appear to have a very keen sense of humor, said Frederick weightily. It amuses you to be shut up in cupboards. It amuses you to hear me say, well, it's nice to be able to get some amusement out of life, isn't it? Do you want to know why she shut me up in here? I haven't the slightest curiosity. Why? I forgot where I was and lighted a cigarette. Oh, my goodness. Now what? I thought I heard a mouse. Do you think there are mice in this cupboard? Certainly, said Frederick. Dozens of them. He would have gone on to specify the kind of mice. Large, fat, slithery, active mice. But at this juncture, something hard and sharp took him agonizingly on the ankle. Ouch! cried Frederick. Oh, I'm sorry. Was that you? It was. I was kicking about to discourage the mice. I see. Did it hurt much? Only a trifle more than blazes, thank you for inquiring. I'm sorry. And so am I. Anyway, it would have given a mouse a nasty jar if it had been one, wouldn't it? The shock, I should imagine, of a lifetime. Well, I'm sorry. Don't mention it. Why should I worry about a broken ankle when... When, when what? I forgot what I was going to say. When your heart is broken? My heart is not broken. It was a point which Frederick wished to make luminously clear. I am gay, happy. Who the devil is this man Dillingwater? He concluded abruptly. There was a momentary pause. Oh, just a man. Where did you meet him? At the Ponderby's. Where did you get engaged to him? At the Ponderby's. Did you pay another visit to the Ponderby's then? No. Frederick choked. When you went to stay with the Ponderby's, you were engaged to me. Do you mean to say you broke off your engagement to me, met this Dillingwater, and got engaged to him all in the course of a single visit lasting barely two weeks? Yes. Frederick said nothing. It struck him later that he should have said, Oh, woman, woman. But at that moment, it did not occur to him. I don't see what right you have to criticize me, said Jane. Who criticized you? You did. When? Just then. 
I call heaven to witness, cried Frederick Moliner, that not by so much as a single word have I hinted at my opinion that your conduct is the vilest and most revolting that has ever been drawn to my attention. I never so much as suggested that your revelation had shocked me to the depths of my soul. Yes, you did. You sniffed. If Bingley on Sea is not open for being sniffed in at this season, said Frederick coldly, I should have been informed earlier. I had a perfect right to get engaged to anyone I liked, and as quick as I liked, after the abominable way you behaved. Abominable way I behaved? What do you mean? You know. Pardon me, I do not know. If you are alluding to my refusal to wear the tie you bought for me on my last birthday, I can but repeat my statement, made to you at the time, that, apart from being the sort of tie no upright man would be seen dead in a ditch with, its colors were those of a cycling, angly, and dart-throwing club, of which I am not a member. I am not alluding to that. I mean the day I was going to the Ponderbys, and you promised to see me off at Paddington, and then you phoned and said you couldn't as you were detained by important business. And I thought, well, I think I'll go by the later train after all, because that will give me time to lunch quietly at the Barclay. And I went and lunched quietly at the Barclay. And when I was there, who should I see but you at a table at the other end of the room, gorging yourself in the company of a beastly creature in a pink frock and hennet hair? That's what I mean. Frederick clutched at his forehead. Repeat that. Jane did so. Ye God, said Frederick. It was like a blow over the head. Something seemed to snap inside me, and I can explain it all, said Frederick. Jane's voice in the darkness was cold. Explain, she said. Explain, said Frederick. All? All. Jane coughed. Before beginning, she said, do not forget that I know every one of your female relatives by sight. I don't want to talk about my female relatives. Well, I thought you were going to say that she was one of them, an aunt or something. Nothing of the kind. She was a review star. You probably saw her in a piece called Toot Toot. And that is your idea of an explanation? Frederick raised his hand for silence. Realizing that she could not see it, he lowered it again. Jane, he said in a low, throbbing voice, <clears throat> can you cast your mind back to a morning in the spring when we walked, you and I, in Kensington Gardens? The sun shone brightly. The sky was a limpid blue flecked with fleecy clouds, and from the west there blew a gentle breeze. If you think you can melt me with that sort of... Nothing of the kind. What I was leading up to was this. As we walked, you and I, there came, snuffling up to us, a small Pekingese dog. It left me, I admit, quite cold, but you went into ecstasies, and from that moment I had but one mission in life, to discover who that peak belonged to and buy it for you. And after the most exhaustive inquiries, I tracked the animal down. It was the property of the lady in whose company you saw me lunching, lightly not gorging, at the Barclay that day. I managed to get an introduction to her and immediately began to make offers to her for the dog. Money was no object to me. All I wished was to put the little beast in your arms and see her face light up. It was to be a surprise. Well, that morning the woman phoned and said that she had practically decided to close with my latest bid 
and would I take her to lunch and discuss the matter. It was agony to have to ring you up and tell you I could not see you off at Paddington, but it had to be done. It was anguish having to sit for two hours listening to that highly colored female telling me how the comedian had ruined her big number in her last show by standing upstage and pretending to drink ink. But that had to be done too. I bit the bullet and saw it through and I got the dog that afternoon. And the next morning, I received your letter breaking off our engagement. There was a long silence. Is this true? said Jane. Quite true. It sounds too, how shall I put it, too frightfully probable. Look me in the face. What's the good of looking you in the face when I can't see an inch in front of me? Well, is it true? Certainly it is true. Can you produce the peak? I have not got it on my person, said Frederick stiffly, but it is at my flat, probably chewing up a valuable rug. I will give it to you for a wedding present. Oh, Freddy, a wedding present, repeated Frederick, though the words stuck in his throat like patent American health cereal. But I'm not going to be married. You're, you're, what did you say? I'm not going to be married. But what of Dillingwater? That's off. Off? Off, said Jane firmly. I only got engaged to him out of pique. I thought I could go through with it, buoying myself up by thinking what a score it would be off you, but one morning I saw him eating a peach and I began to waver. He splashed himself to the eyebrows. And just after that I found that he had a trick of making a sort of funny noise when he drank coffee. I would sit on the other side of the breakfast table, looking at him and saying to myself, Now comes the funny noise! And when I thought of doing that all the rest of my life, I saw that the scheme was impossible. So I broke off the engagement. Frederick gasped. Jane. He groped out, found her, and drew her into his arms. Freddy. Jane. Freddy. Jane. Freddy. Jane. On the panel of the door there sounded an authoritative rap. Through it there spoke an authoritative voice, slightly cracked by age, but full, nevertheless, of the spirit that will stand no nonsense. Master Frederick, hello, are you good now? You bet I'm good. Will you give Miss Jane a nice kiss? I will do, said Frederick Mulliner, enthusiasm ringing in every syllable. Just that little thing. Then you may come out, said Nurse Wilkes. I boiled you two more eggs. Frederick paled, but only for an instant. What did anything matter now? His lips were set in a firm line, and his voice, when he spoke, was calm and steady. Lead me to them. End of section 7. Section 8 of Meet Mr. Mulliner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by James Hutchison. Meet Mr. Mulliner by P.G. Woodhouse. The Romance of a Bulb Squeezer. Somebody had left a copy of an illustrated weekly paper in the bar parlor of the Angler's Rest, and glancing through it I came upon the ninth full-page photograph of a celebrated musical comedy actress, 
that I had seen since the preceding Wednesday. This one showed her looking archly over her shoulder, with a rose between her teeth, and I flung the periodical from me with a stifled cry. Tut, tut, said Mr. Mulliner reprovingly. You must not allow these things to affect you so deeply. Remember, it is not actresses' photographs that matter, but the courage which we bring to them. He sipped his hot scotch. I wonder if you have ever reflected, he said gravely, what life must be like for the men whose trade it is to make these pictures. Statistics show that the two classes of the community which least often marry are milkmen and fashionable photographers. Milkmen because they see women too early in the morning, and fashionable photographers because their days are spent in an atmosphere of feminine loveliness so monotonous that they become surfeited and morose. I know of none of the world's workers whom I pity more sincerely than the fashionable photographer. And yet, by one of those strokes of irony which make the thoughtful man waver between sardonic laughter and sympathetic tears, it is the ambition of every youngster who enters the profession some day to become one. At the outset of his career, you see, a young photographer is sorely oppressed by human gargoyles, and gradually this begins to prey upon his nerves. Why is it, I remember my cousin Clarence saying, after he had been about a year in the business, that all these misfits want to be photographed? Why do men with faces which you would have thought that they would be anxious to hush up wish to be strewn about the country on whatnots and in albums? I started out full of ardor and enthusiasm, and my eager soul was being crushed. This morning, the mayor of Tooting East came to make an appointment. He's coming tomorrow afternoon to be taken in his cocked hat and robes of office, and there's absolutely no excuse for a man with a face like that perpetuating his features. I wish to goodness I was one of those fellows who only take camera portraits of beautiful women. His dream was to come sooner than he had imagined. Within a week, the great test case of Biggs v. Moliner had raised my cousin Clarence from an obscure studio in West Kensington to the position of London's most famous photographer. You remember the case? The events that led up to it were briefly as follows. Jonathan Horatio Biggs, OBE, the newly elected mayor of Tooting East, alighted from a cab at the door of Clarence Mulliner's studio at 4.10 on the afternoon of June the 17th. At 4.11, he went in. At 4.16 and a half, he was observed shooting out of a first-floor window, vigorously assisted by my cousin, who was prodding him in the seat of his trousers with the sharp end of a photographic tripod. Those who were in a position to see stated that Clarence's face was distorted by a fury scarcely human. Naturally, the matter could not be expected to rest there. A week later, the case of Biggs v. Mulliner had begun, the plaintiff claiming damages to the extent of 10,000 pounds and a new pair of trousers. And at first, things looked very black for Clarence. It was the speech of Sir Joseph Bodger, K.C., briefed for the defense, that turned the scale. I do not, said Sir Joseph, addressing the jury on the second day, propose to deny the charges which have been brought against my client. We freely admit that on the 17th instant, 
We did jab the defendant with our tripod in a manner calculated to cause alarm and despondency. But, gentlemen, we plead justification. The whole case turns upon one question. Is a photographer entitled to assault, either with, or as the case may be without a tripod, a sitter who, after being warned that his face is not up to the minimum standard requirements, insists upon remaining in the chair and moistening the lips with the tip of the tongue? Gentlemen, I say yes. Unless you decide in favor of my client, gentlemen of the jury, photographers, debarred by law from the privilege of rejecting sitters, will be at the mercy of anyone who comes along with the price of a dozen photographs in his pocket. You've seen the plaintiff, Biggs. You've noted his broad, slab-like face, intolerable to any man of refinement and sensibility. You have observed his walrus mustache, his double chin, his protruding eyes. Take another look at him, and then tell me if my client was not justified in chasing him with a tripod out of that sacred temple of art and beauty, his studio. Gentlemen, I have finished. I leave my client's fate in your hands with every confidence that you will return the only verdict that can conceivably issue from 12 men of your obvious intelligence, your manifest sympathy, and your superb breadth of vision. Of course, after that, there was nothing to it. The jury decided in Clarence's favor without leaving the box, and the crowd waiting outside to hear the verdict carried him shoulder-high to his house, refusing to disperse until he had made a speech and sung photographers, Never, never, never shall be slaves. And next morning, every paper in England came out with a leading article commending him for having so courageously established, as it had not been established since the days of the Magna Carta, the fundamental principle of the liberty of the subject. The effect of this publicity on Clarence's fortunes was naturally stupendous. He had become in a flash the best-known photographer of the United Kingdom, and was now in a position to realize that vision which he had of taking the pictures of none but the beaming and the beautiful. Every day the loveliest ornaments of society and the stage flocked to his studio, and it was with utmost astonishment, therefore, that calling upon him one morning on my return to England, after an absence of two years in the East, I learned that fame and wealth had not brought him happiness. I found him sitting moodily in his studio, staring with dull eyes at a camera portrait of a well-known actress in a bathing suit. He looked up listlessly as I entered. Clarence, I cried, shocked at his appearance, for there were hard lines about his mouth and wrinkles on a forehead that once had been as smooth as alabaster. What is wrong? Everything, he replied. I'm fed up. What with? Life, beautiful women, this beastly photography business. I was amazed. Even in the East, rumors of his success had reached me, and on my return to London, I found that they had not been exaggerated. In every photographer's club in the metropolis, from the negative and solution in Paul Mall to the humble public houses frequented by men who do your pictures while you wait on the sands at seaside resorts, he was being freely spoken of 
as the logical successor to the presidency of the amalgamated guild of bulb squeezers. I can't take it much longer, said Clarence, tearing the camera portrait into a dozen pieces with a dry sob and burying his face in his hands, actresses nursing their dolls, countesses sippering over kittens, film stars among their books. In ten minutes I go to catch a train at Waterloo. I've been sent for by the Duchess of Hampshire to take some studies of Lady Monica Sudburn in the castle grounds. A shudder ran through him. I patted him on the shoulder. I understood now. She has the most brilliant smile in England, he whispered. Come, come. Coy yet roguish, they tell me. It may not be true. And I'll bet she'll want to be taken offering a lump of sugar to her dog. And the picture will appear in the sketch and the tattler as Lady Monica Sudburn and friend. Clarence, this is morbid. He was silent for a moment. Ah, oh, well, he said pulling himself together with a visible effort. I have made my sodium sulfite, and I must lie in it. I saw him off in a cab. The last view I had of him was of his pale, drawn profile. He looked, I thought, like an aristocrat of the French Revolution being borne off to his doom on a tumbrel. How little he guessed that the only girl in the world lay waiting for him around the corner. No, you're wrong. Lady Monica did not turn out to be the only girl in the world. If what I said caused you to expect that, I misled you. Lady Monica proved to be all his fancy had pictured her. In fact, even more. Not only was her smile coy yet roguish, but she had a sort of coquettish droop of the left eyelid, of which no one had warned him. And in addition to her two dogs, which she portrayed in the act of feeding with two lumps of sugar, she possessed a totally unforeseen pet monkey, of which he was compelled to take no fewer than eleven studies. No, it was not Lady Monica who captured Clarence's heart, but a girl in a taxi whom he met on his way to the station. It was in a traffic jam at the top of Whitehall that he first observed this girl. His cab had become becalmed in a sea of omnibuses, and chancing to look to the right, he perceived within a few feet of him another taxi, which had been heading for Trafalgar Square. There was a face at its window. It turned towards him, and their eyes met. To most men, it would have seemed an unattractive face. To Clarence, surfeited with the coy, the beaming, and the delicately chiseled, it was the most wonderful thing he had ever looked at. All his life, he felt, he had been searching for something on these lines— that stubbed nose, those freckles, that breadth of cheekbone, the squareness of that chin, and not a dimple in sight. He told me afterwards that his only feeling at first was one of incredulity. He had not believed that the world contained women like this, and then the traffic jam loosened up and he was carried away. It was just as he was passing the Houses of Parliament that the realization came to him that the strange, bubbly sensation that seemed to start from just above the lower left-side pocket of his waistcoat, was not, as he had first opposed, dyspepsia, but love. Yes, love had come at long last to Clarence Mulliner. And for all the good it was likely to do him, he reflected bitterly, 
It might just as well have been the dyspepsia for which he had mistaken it. He loved a girl whom he would probably never see again. He did not know her name or where she lived or anything about her. All he knew was that he would cherish her image in his heart forever, and that the thought of going on with the old dreary round of photographing lovely women with coy yet roguish smiles was almost more than he could bear. However, custom is strong, and a man who has once allowed the bulb-squeezing habit to get a grip on him cannot cast it off in a moment. Next day, Clarence was back in his studio, diving into the velvet nosebag as of yore, and telling Pyrrhuses to watch the little birdie, just as if nothing had happened. And if there was now a strange, haunting look of pain in his eyes, nobody objected to that. Indeed, inasmuch as the grief which gnawed at his heart had the effect of deepening and mellowing his camera-side manner to an almost sacerdotal unctuousness, his private sorrows actually helped his professional prestige. Women told one another that being photographed by Clarence Molliner was like undergoing some wonderful spiritual experience in a noble cathedral, and his appointment book became fuller than ever. So great now was his reputation that to anyone who had had the privilege of being taken by him, either full face or in profile, the doors of society opened automatically. It was whispered that his name was to appear in the next birthday honors list, and at the annual banquet of the amalgamated bulb squeezers, when Sir Godfrey Stooge, the retiring president, in proposing his health, concluded a glowingly eulogistic speech with the words, Gentlemen, I give you my destined successor, Mulliner the Liberator. Five hundred frantic photographers almost shivered the glasses on the table with their applause. And yet, he was not happy. He had lost the only girl he had ever loved, and without her, what was fame? What was affluence? What were the highest honors in the land? These were questions he was asking himself one night as he sat in his library, somberly sipping a final whiskey and soda before retiring. He had asked them once, and was going to ask them again, when he was interrupted by the sound of someone ringing at the front doorbell. He rose, surprised. It was late for callers. The domestic staff had gone to bed, so he went to the door and opened it. A shadowy figure was standing on the steps. Mr. Molliner? I am Mr. Molliner. The man stepped past him into the hall. And... As he did so, Clarence saw that he was wearing over the upper half of his face a black velvet mask. "'I must apologize for hiding my face, Mr. Mulliner,' the visitor said, as Clarence led him to the library. "'Not at all,' replied Clarence, courteously. "'No doubt it is all for the best.' "'Indeed,' said the other, with a touch of asperity. "'If you really want to know, I am probably as handsome a man as there is in London.' but my mission is one of such extraordinary secrecy that I dare not run the risk of being recognized. He paused, and Clarence saw his eyes glint through the holes in the mask as he directed a rapid gaze into each corner of the library. Mr. Mulliner, have you any acquaintance with the ramifications of international secret politics? I have. And you are a patriot? I am. Then I can speak freely. 
No doubt you're aware, Mr. Molliner, that for some time past this country and a certain rival power have been competing for the friendship and alliance of a certain other power? No, said Clarence. They didn't tell me that. Well, such is the case. And the president of this power, which one? The second one. Call it B. The president of power B is now in London. He arrived incognito, traveling under the assumed name of J.J. Schubert and the representatives of Power A, to the best of our knowledge, are not yet aware of his presence. This gives us just the few hours necessary to clinch this treaty with Power B before Power A can interfere. I ought to tell you, Mr. Mullender, that if Power B forms an alliance with this country, the supremacy of the Anglo-Saxon race will be secured for hundreds of years. Whereas if Power A gets hold of Power B, Civilization will be thrown into the melting pot. In the eyes of all Europe, and when I say all Europe, I refer particularly to powers C, D, and E, this nation would sink to the rank of a fourth-class power. Call it Power F, said Clarence. It rests with you, Mr. Mulliner, to save England. Great Britain, corrected Clarence. He was half Scotch on his mother's side. But how? What can I do about it? The position is this. The president of Power B has an overwhelming desire to have his photograph taken by Clarence Mulliner. Consent to take it, and our difficulties will be at an end. Overcome with gratitude, he will sign the treaty, and the Anglo-Saxon race will be safe. Clarence did not hesitate. Apart from the natural gratification of feeling that he was doing the Anglo-Saxon race a bit of good, Business was business, and if the president took a dozen of the large size finished in silver wash, it would mean a nice profit. I shall be delighted, he said. Your patriotism, said the visitor, will not go unrewarded. It will be gratefully noted in the very highest circles. Clarence reached for his appointment book. Now, let me see. Wednesday? No, I'm uh, full up Wednesday. Thursday? No. Um, suppose the president looks in at my studio between four and five on Friday? The visitor uttered a gasp. Good heavens, Mr. Mulliner, he exclaimed. Surely you do not imagine that with the vast issues at stake, these things can be done openly and in daylight. If the devils in the pay of power A were to learn that the president intended to have his photograph taken by you, I would not give a straw for your chances of living an hour. Then what do you suggest? You must accompany me now to the President's suite at the Milan Hotel. We shall travel in a closed car, and God send that these fiends did not recognize me as I came here. If they did, we shall never reach that car alive. Have you, by any chance, while we've been talking, heard the hoot of an owl? No, said Clarence. No owls. Then perhaps they are nowhere near. The fiends always imitate the hoot of an owl. A thing, said Clarence, which I tried to do when I was a small boy and never seemed able to manage. The popular idea that owls say, to wit, to woo, is all wrong. The actual noise they make is something far more difficult and complex, and it was beyond me. Quite so. The visitor looked at his watch. However, absorbing as these reminiscences of your boyhood days are, time is flying. Shall we be making a start? Certainly. Then follow me.
It appeared to be holiday time for fiends, or else the night shift did not yet come on, for they reached the car without being molested. Clarence stepped in, and his masked visitor, after a keen look up and down the street, followed him. Talking of my boyhood, began Clarence. The sentence was never completed. A soft, wet pad was pressed over his nostrils. The air became a reek with the sickly fumes of chloroform, and Clarence knew no more. When he came to, he was no longer in the car. He found himself lying on a bed in a room in a strange house. It was a medium-sized room with scarlet wallpaper, simply furnished with a wash-hand stand, a chest of drawers, two cane-bottomed chairs, and a God Bless Our Home motto framed in oak. He was conscious of a severe headache and was about to rise and make for the water bottle on the washstand when, to his consternation, he discovered that his arms and legs were shackled with a stout cord. As a family, the Mulliners have always been noted for their reckless courage, and Clarence was no exception to the rule. But for an instant, his heart undeniably beat a little faster. He saw now that his masked visitor had tricked him. Instead of being a representative of His Majesty's diplomatic service, a most respectable class of men, he had really been all along a fiend in the pay of Power A. No doubt he and his vile associates were even now chuckling at the ease with which their victim had been duped. Clarence gritted his teeth and struggled vainly to loose the knots which secured his wrists. He had fallen back exhausted when he heard the sound of a key turning and the door opened. Somebody crossed the room and stood by the bed, looking down on him. The newcomer was a stout man with a complexion that matched the wallpaper. He was puffing slightly, as if he found the stairs trying. He had broad, slab-like features, and his face was split in the middle by a walrus mustache. Somewhere and in some place, Clarence was convinced, he had seen this man before. And then it all came back to him. An open window with a pleasant summer breeze blowing in, a stout man in a cocked hat trying to climb through this window, and he, Clarence, doing his best to help him with the sharp end of a tripod. It was Jonathan Horatio Biggs, the mayor of Tooting East. A shudder of loathing ran through Clarence. Traitor, he cried. Eh? said the mayor. If anybody had told me that a son of Tooting nursed in the keen air of freedom which blows across the common, would sell himself for gold to the enemies of his country, I would never have believed it. Well, you may tell your employers. What employers? Power A. Oh, that, said the mayor. I'm afraid my secretary, whom I instructed to bring you to this house, was obliged to romance a little in order to ensure your accompanying him, Mr. Mulliner. All that about Power A and Power B was just his little joke. If you want to know why you were brought here, Clarence uttered a low groan. I have guessed your ghastly object, you ghastly object, he said quietly. You want me to photograph you? The mayor shook his head. Not myself. I realize that that can never be. My daughter. Your daughter? My daughter. Does she take after you? People tell me there is a resemblance. I refuse, said Clarence. 
Think well, Mr. Moliner. I have done all the thinking that is necessary. England, or rather Great Britain, looks to me to photograph only her fairest and loveliest. And though, as a man, I admit that I loathe beautiful women, as a photographer I have a duty to consider that it is higher than any personal feelings. History has yet to record an instance of a photographer playing his country false, and Clarence Mulliner is not the man to supply the first one. I decline your offer. I wasn't looking on it exactly as an offer, said the mayor, thoughtfully. More as a command, if you get my meaning. You imagine that you can bend a lens artist to your will and make him false to his professional reputation? I was thinking of having a try. Do you realize that if my incarceration here were known, 10,000 photographers would tear this house brick from brick and you limb from limb? But it isn't, the mayor pointed out. And that, if you follow me, is the whole point. You came here by night in a closed car. You could stay here for the rest of your life and no one would be any the wiser. I really think you had better reconsider, Mr. Molliner. You have had my answer. Well... I'll leave you to think it over. Dinner will be served at 7.30. Don't bother to dress. At half past seven precisely, the door opened again, and the mayor reappeared, followed by a butler bearing on a silver salver, a glass of water and a small slice of bread. Pride urged Clarence to reject the refreshment, but hunger overcame pride. He swallowed the bread which the butler offered him in small bits and a spoon, and drank the water. At what hour would the gentleman desire breakfast, sir? asked the butler. Now, said Clarence, for his appetite, always healthy, seemed to have been sharpened by the trials which he had undergone. Uh, let us say nine o'clock, suggested the mayor. Put aside another slice of that bread, Meadows, and no doubt Mr. Mulliner would enjoy a glass of this excellent water. For perhaps half an hour after his host had left him, Clarence's mind was obsessed to the point of exclusion of all other thoughts by a vision of the dinner he would have liked to be enjoying. All we Mulliners have been good trenchermen, and to put a bit of bread into it after it had been unoccupied for a whole day was to offer to Clarence's stomach an insult which it resented with an indescribable bitterness. Clarence's only emotion for some considerable time, then, was that of hunger. His thoughts centered themselves on food, and it was to this fact, oddly enough, that he owed his release. For as he lay there in a sort of delirium, picturing himself getting outside a medium steak, smothered in onions, with grilled tomatoes and floury potatoes on the side, it was suddenly borne in upon him that this steak did not taste quite so good as other steaks which he had eaten in the past. It was tough and lacked juiciness. It tasted just like rope. And then, his mind clearing, he saw that it actually was rope. Carried away by the anguish of hunger, he had been chewing the cord which bound his hands, and he now discovered that he had bitten into it quite deeply. A sudden flood of hope poured over a Clarence Mulliner. Carrying on at this rate, he perceived, he would be able ere long to free himself. It only needed a little imagination. After a brief interval to rest his aching jaws, he put himself deliberately into that state of relaxation which is recommended by the apostles of suggestion. 
I am entering the dining room of my club, murmured Clarence. I am sitting down. The waiter is handing me the bill of fare. I have selected roast duck with green peas and new potatoes, lamb cutlets with Brussels sprouts, fricassee of chicken, porterhouse steak, boiled beef and carrots, leg of mutton, haunch of mutton, mutton chops, curried mutton, veal, kidneys saute, spaghetti caruso, and eggs and bacon, fried on both sides. The waiter is now bringing my order. I have taken up my knife and fork. I am beginning to eat. And murmuring a brief grace, Clarence flung himself on the rope and set to. Twenty minutes later, he was hobbling about the room, restoring the circulation to his cramped limbs. Just as he had succeeded in getting himself nicely limbered up, he heard the key turning in the door. Clarence crouched for the spring. The room was quite dark now, and he was glad of it, for darkness well fitted the work which lay before him. His plans, conceived on the spur of the moment, were necessarily sketchy, but they included jumping on the mayor's shoulders and pulling his head off. After that, no doubt, other modes of self-expression would suggest themselves. The door opened. Clarence made his leap, and he was just about to start on the program as arranged when he discovered with a shock of horror that this was no OBE that he is being rough with, but a woman. And no photographer worthy of the name will ever lay a hand upon a woman save to raise her chin and tilt it a little more to the left. I beg your pardon, he cried. Don't mention it, said his visitor in a low voice. I hope I didn't disturb you. Not at all, said Clarence. There was a pause. Rotten weather, said Clarence, feeling that it was for him as the male member of the sketch to keep the conversation going. Yes, isn't it? A lot of rain we've had this summer. Yes, it seems to get worse every year, doesn't it? So bad for tennis, and cricket, and polo, and garden parties. I hate rain. So do I. Of course, we may have a fine August. Yes, there's always that. The ice was broken, and the girls seemed to become more at ease. I came to let you out, she said. I must apologize for my father. He loves me foolishly and has no scruples where my happiness is concerned. He has always yearned to have me photographed by you, but I cannot consent to allow a photographer to be coerced into abandoning his principles. If you will follow me, I will let you out by the front door. It's awfully good of you, said Clarence, awkwardly. As any man of nice sentiment would have been, he was embarrassed. He wished that he could have obliged this kind-hearted girl by taking her picture, but a natural delicacy restrained him from touching on this subject. They went down the stairs in silence. On the first landing, a hand was placed on his in the darkness, and the girl's voice whispered in his ear, We are just outside Father's study, he heard her say. We must be quiet as mice. As what? said Clarence. Mice. Oh, rather, said Clarence, and immediately bumped into what appeared to be a pedestal of some sort. These pedestals usually have vases on top of them, and it was revealed to Clarence a moment later that this one was no exception. There was a noise like ten simultaneous dinner services coming apart in the hands of ten simultaneous parlor maids, and then the door was flung open, 
the landing became flooded with light, and the mayor of Tutingi stood before them. He was carrying a revolver, and his face was dark with menace. Ha! said the mayor. But Clarence was paying no attention to him. He was staring open-mouthed into the girl. She had shrunk back against the wall, and the light fell full upon her. You! cried Clarence. This! began the mayor. You! At last! This is a pretty... Am I dreaming? This is a pretty state of the... Ever since that day I saw you in the cab, I've been scouring London for you. To think I have found you at last. This is a pretty state of affairs, said the mayor, breathing on the barrel of his revolver and polishing it on the sleeve of his coat. My daughter, helping the foe of her family to fly. Flee, father, corrected the girl faintly. Flee or fly, this is no time for arguing about insects. Let me tell you, Clarence interrupted him indignantly. What do you mean, he cried, by saying that she took after you? She does. She does not. She is the loveliest girl in the world. Well, you look like Lon Chaney made up for something. See for yourself. Clarence led them to a large mirror at the head of the stairs. Your face, if you can call it that, is one of those beastly, blobby, squashy sort of faces. Here, said the mayor, whereas hers is simply divine. Your eyes are bulbous and goofy. Hey, said the mayor while hers are soft and sweet and intelligent. Your ears... Yes, yes, said the mayor, petulantly. Some other time, some other time. Then am I to take it, Mr. Mulliner? Call me Clarence. I refuse to call you Clarence. You will have to very shortly when I am your son-in-law. The girl uttered a cry. The mayor uttered a louder cry. My son-in-law? That, said Clarence firmly, is what I intend to be and speedily. He turned to the girl. I am a man of volcanic passions, and now that love has come to me, there is no power in heaven or earth that can keep me from the object of my love. It will be my never-ceasing task, er, Gladys, prompted the girl. Thank you. It will be my never-ceasing task, Gladys, to strive daily to make you return that love. You need not strive, Clarence, she whispered softly. It is already returned. Clarence reeled. Already? He gasped. I have loved you since I saw you in that cab. When we were torn asunder, I felt quite faint. So did I. I was in a daze. I tipped my cabman at Waterloo three half-crowns. I, I was aflame with love. I can hardly believe it. Nor could I when I found out. I thought it was threepence. And ever since that day... The mayor coughed. Then, am I to take it, er, Clarence, he said, that your objections to photographing my daughter are removed? Clarence laughed happily. Listen, he said, and I'll show you the sort of son-in-law I am. Ruin my professional reputation, though it may, I will take a photograph of you, too. Me? Absolutely. Standing beside her with the tips of your fingers on her shoulder. And what's more, you can wear your cocked hat. Tears had begun to trickle down the mayor's cheeks. My boy, he sobbed brokenly, my boy. And so happiness came to Clarence Mulliner at last. He never became president of the bulb squeezers, for he retired from business the next day. 
declaring that the hand that had snapped the shutter when taking the photograph of his dear wife should never snap it again for sordid profit. The wedding, which took place some six weeks later, was attended by almost everybody of any note in society or on the stage, and was the first occasion on which a bride and bridegroom had ever walked out of church beneath an arch of crossed tripods. End of section 8